With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us this morning here on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, we have this week's almond update, and proper sanitation requires four elements for maximum efficacy. But our top story today. National Cattlemen's Beef Association Vice President of Government Affairs, Ethan Lane, says they're keeping an eye on proposed USDA rulemaking for the beef industry. We're watching with some concern uh, some of what we're seeing coming out of USDA. Obviously, they continue to be very focused on what they're calling their competition agenda. Um, You know, we believe as well that the competition is really important in the marketplace. Um, Our producers want a fair environment to operate in, but they also want an ability to differentiate their product and and seek premiums uh, for the cattle that they're raising. He says it's possible the proposed Packers and Stockyards rulemaking could be too much. So if we get to a point where USDA is inserting themselves in the marketplace through regulation, um, in an effort to to achieve their version of fairness. And, and, and if that version of fairness looks like someone who doesn't receive the same premiums, you know, being able to litigate or litigate at scale um, on, on every one of those transactions, that is going to disincentivize the, the supply chain from, from paying out those premiums. Lane believes that could lower the overall quality of U.S. beef. We're producing the highest quality beef in the U.S. right now that the world has ever seen. And, and we, we incentivize that through premiums in the marketplace, you know, better genetics, different feeding regimens, you know, meeting that consumer demand and producing what the consumer is looking for. And that comes through market signals. And he says it's not what producers want. And, and they don't want to see a return to commodity cattle. They don't want USDA inserting themselves in the marketplace like they're trying to with their packers and stockyards rulemaking, uh, picking winners and losers. Uh, or worse, pushing for an environment where everybody gets paid the same for their cattle regardless of what they are. And that's the danger um, of some of the, 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 the ideas that are being contemplated in the Packers and Stockyards rulemaking that uh, Secretary Vilsack has been pushing for, uh, again, in his second term here in office. The January WASDE report showed a record level of U.S. corn production in 2023. Mike Zuzalo, president of Global Commodity Analytics, says he expected the corn number to be higher than initially predicted. However, the boost in international corn production was surprising. The global corn number, that was something that I was really expecting to drop pretty substantially because of the damage already done when it came to Brazil's corn. And on top of that, while Argentina looks like they are setting themselves up for a very good, if not near record crop in corn and beans, the ability for Argentina to offset the losses that I think have accrued from the weather that's already occurred in Brazil is something I think the trade and the USDA especially have not really priced in at all. And that's where I do scrutinize those numbers. The increase in China's corn production is surprising because the Asian nation appears to be importing a large amount of corn. To see the USDA increase the world corn ending stocks by what, around 13 or 14 million metric tons, and China to be 12 of that, roughly, and us to be essentially the balance of that with our yield increase, that's a real head-scratcher for me because not only did they increase the Chinese production 4.3% on a monthly basis, they use the Chinese numbers to do that with, and China is importing corn. Their numbers, if they're accurate, are going to be at a three-year high for corn imports. Zuzalo, a longtime market analyst, says the markets need to start paying more attention to the details in these reports. If you looked at USDA's line items and world minus China, 
those ending stocks did not change at all. And this is where what I'm saying to the listener right now is what we learned in 2023, and it's continuing in 2024, is the trade does not scrutinize the commodity markets like it used to. And I think that's an excellent example, as is the example of increased hostilities in the Middle East and crude oil has been losing value, not gaining value. This has got to change in order for us to see a different commodity trend in 2024. Again, that was Mike Zuzalo of Global Commodity Analytics. Don't forget, if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to get the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. Just search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour, and it is available on both Apple and Android devices. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will return in just a moment. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's National Spotlight, despite the recent snowfall and cold temperatures, there's still potential for continued dry conditions in Wisconsin. That's according to Shane Hubbard, research scientist at the Space Science and Engineering Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He provides insight into how the ongoing El Nino event is impacting weather patterns in that state. El Nino is the warming of the waters uh, at the equator in the Pacific Ocean. And specifically, we look at that region that's just off of South America. And that impacts our weather here in Wisconsin, throughout the U.S. actually. And for winters in Wisconsin, we have warmer winters on average. Uh, Record-setting warm winters have happened in the past. Uh, Lower snowfall totals and drier conditions. And we've already seen that this year. We've seen warmer conditions November, December, and and through at least the mid part of January. We're going to see a cool down toward the end of January, we believe. But we've also seen those lower snowfall totals. I mean, we're about 17 inches below normal here in southern Wisconsin. In northern Wisconsin, even more than that. So we're really seeing the, the impacts of El Nino. El Nino has a key impact on what's happening in South America as well. So there's a really high relationship between El Nino and what happens in South America. And so in South America, we actually see similar conditions to what we see here. Um, We see drier conditions there. Uh, We tend to see warmer conditions there. And so yields generally go down in South America. However, we see better growing conditions in places uh, in Europe. So Europe and Asia as well. And so in those areas where we have a lot of crops um, that are being sold, they tend tend to do a little bit better in those areas, while here in the sort of Western Hemisphere, our crops tend to do a little bit worse. Hubbard recommends embracing the resilience of crops and adapting farming practices, including the use of drought-resistant hybrids. So it's interesting. I I remember when I was a kid, um, when we, if we had had like the nine-inch deficit of rainfall that we had this past year, the crops would have been rolled up dried out they would have looked terrible but there's a lot of resilience uh, sort of bred into the crops today and so i think some of the hybrids that we have out now that are more drought resistant i mean certainly those would be fantastic to be able to use especially this year when we do expect that conditions could be rather dry Um, certainly there are farming practices that do help in both dry and wet conditions um, if we're maintaining um, certain areas of our fields that might hold water a little bit better than than others. But I think just choosing the right crops to grow, I mean, I think are going to be great. I mean, I know soybeans are certainly far more drought resistant today than they ever were in the past. And so these types of things are certainly going to help farmers. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report. 
In today's livestock news, looking at the 2024 U.S. red meat export potential, the forecast is mixed. Chad Smith has more. Aaron Bohr, vice president of economic analysis with the U.S. Meat Export Federation, says the numbers look better for U.S. pork. On the pork side, it's been really strong growth or even rebound in exports in 2023, about an 8% increase, and then expecting and forecasting a further increase in pork exports in 2024, possibly around another 4% gain off of the increase in 2023. She says that when looking at global pork production, U.S. pork is well positioned for further growth. On the supply side in really both Europe and in China, what's happened is Europe's production has declined by about 2.8 million metric tons or by about 12% if we look at their 2021 peak production compared to where it's going to end this year. But it lined up exactly with China's decrease in imports of pork. So they will have declined about the same, about 2.8 million tons lower than at their peak. In 2024, talking to European producers, there was not much optimism for a rebound whatsoever. There is a chance that China's production moderates in 2024. It's hard to get excited about that at this moment. We're definitely still watching and not putting our hopes on it. Beef has faced several challenges during 2023, and that pattern will continue in the new year. I see 2024 as the real rationing of demand for U.S. beef, because we know production is going to decline further. And so you're looking at a domestic consumer versus our international consumers and who's going to bid more. I hear often the perception that, well, we're producing less beef, we don't need to export as much anyway. And that couldn't be farther from the truth, especially when we need to enable higher prices across the whole supply chain to send the signal to rebuild the herd. There are some reasons for optimism in the new year. We could actually see a couple of tailwinds in 2024. Recently, after the Federal Reserve meeting in December, we're hearing a bit more from the markets anyway about lower interest rate expectations and some hope that we could have a bit weaker dollar, at least for commodity exports. We've seen these inventory pressures for actual meat and freezers and markets starting to ease. And so I think there's some optimism there as importers have kind of adjusted. And as they expect higher U.S. beef prices, I think they'll be more willing to buy because we have seen that pricing situation normalize. For more information on exports, go to USMEF.org. Chad Smith reporting. In other livestock news, 2023 was a challenging year for pork producers. Even so, they persist. Introduced in August as president of the National Pork Producers Council, Scott Hayes, a Missouri hog farmer, explains the headwinds that pork producers faced in the last year. It's been a challenging year financially for producers, a very challenging year. Uh, our cost of production has is, is been high. It's still running about 60% higher than it was three years ago, even though we got some relief with this harvest. Hayes says the industry looks forward to 2024 with hopes for a profitable year. There's good things happening on exports. Exports are up some. Uh, and uh, I know our friends at, at Pork Board are working on domestic consumption, and and uh, I think we'll get some movement there. He adds that pork provides a great value at the meat case. 
Somebody told me last night, I can buy a whole pork loin for what I have to pay for a pound of beef. And hopefully people will see that and pick up that pork. You know, we, we had a lot of new pork eaters during COVID when they're eating at home. And so hopefully they see that value and buy some product and, and cook it and, and their family enjoys it. For Agnet West, I'm Will Jordan. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Ours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director Brian German. The American Feed Industry Association is set to receive over $170,000 in federal funding through the U.S. Department of Agriculture for an Agricultural Services Market Access Program. With additional rollover funding, the association's 2024 MAP funding totals nearly $200,000, providing opportunities for the animal food industry to expand market access and support the export of U.S. animal food products to markets such as Vietnam and China. Association President and CEO Constant Coleman expressed appreciation to the USDA, emphasizing their role as a foremost authority in the animal feed, feed ingredient, and pet food trade. The funding allows the association to continue efforts to promote U.S. products and convey the benefits such as utility, safety, and quality of American animal food products to international stakeholders. A bipartisan group of lawmakers have voiced concern about the impacts of increasing wages for H-2A workers. 75 members of the U.S. House of Representatives signed a letter urging the House and Senate Appropriations Committees to address concerns about the rising adverse effect wage rate. The required wages for H-2A workers have more than doubled since 2005, reaching a national average of $17.55 an hour in 2024. Citing increased consumer costs and international disadvantages for U.S. producers, the letter proposes a temporary wage freeze to alleviate the strain on farm operations. The legislators emphasized the need for short-term relief while advocating for broader reforms in the agricultural workforce system. Ag organizations, including the American Farm Bureau Federation and International Fresh Produce Association, support the initiative, highlighting the urgent need for Congress to address the labor crisis affecting family farms. Last week's annual rice grower meetings featured a variety of informative updates that were well-received by industry members. Rice Farm Advisor Whitney Brim DeForest highlighted some of the biggest topics of discussion at the meetings. You know, some of the questions that came up related to some of the herbicides that are coming down the pipeline. Um, we've got a, a new herbicide registered for sure this year, which is Cliffhanger. The active ingredient is benzobicyclone, so that'll be a new one for folks this year. And then there's a couple others that are, are pending, um, so that was I'd say one of the big questions. Um, and then just kind of talking about some new research that we're working on, uh, Bruce Lindquist and working with Luis and, and I to do some uh, new systems, looking at fallowing, uh, drill seeding into fallowed ground. So just some interesting kind of new takes on rice planting and, and managing. The annual strawberry production research meeting is coming up on Wednesday, February 14th. UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor for Strawberries and Caneberries, Mark Bolda, highlighted some of the topics that will be discussed at this year's meeting, which is going to be held online via Zoom. It'll go from approximately 8 in the morning to about noon, 
And then people can register for that event online. It'd be my Mark Bold of Berries blog. You can find it there. I think there's other places to sign up. There's a number of different topics. For example, we have our plant breeder, Stephen Knapp. He'll be talking about some of his new varieties that offer a resistance to one of our major soil diseases. Uh, myself, I'll be talking about some exciting new uh, materials to manage ligus in strawberries. We also have a, a, our expert from UC Berkeley, Kent Dana. He'll be talking about some of the uh, biological controls that he's found for spotted winged Drosophila. I'm Brian German for AgNet West Radio Network. Promoting agroforestry on farms. That's coming up on This Land of Ours. Propagate and the Rodale Institute announced a new partnership to promote agroforestry. The collaboration's goal is to increase the adoption of agroforestry and tree cropping systems in North America. Agroforestry systems introduce additional streams of income for farmers and boost the resilience of their operations. Increasing the number of farms across the country is also crucial to the health of the food system and climate stability. Regenerative practices like agroforestry promote overall soil health, store carbon in soils, accumulate woody biomass, improve water quality, promote biodiversity, and support pollinators. Rodale Institute CEO Jeff Katch says agroforestry is a critical tool for farmers and ranchers to improve both agricultural land and the environment. Rodale and Propagate, he says, will further develop innovative research and expand producers' access to actionable data that enables their adoption of regenerative practices. This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back. If you're still trying to keep your New Year's resolutions to lose weight, one expert says maybe you should include your pets in those resolutions. On this edition of Agriculture USA, Gary Crawford reports on what some say is an epidemic of pet obesity and what pet owners can do about it. Are you a little fatter now than you were before the holidays? Do you think you're overweight? And have you done what so many people have done this New Year's? This is my New Year's resolution. Ah, yes, resolving to exercise and watch your weight. But one expert says maybe you should go make that same resolution for your dog or cat. After all, ducks... They're supposed... That's a weird-sounding duck. Well, anyway, ducks are supposed to waddle around, but not... Your poor dog, or... Now that cat's got the hiccups, what's with that? But it turns out that too many of our pets are waddling when they ought to be walking and scampering. That's because they are way overweight. Yeah, we do see it a lot. One expert there says there's an epidemic of pet obesity. So coming up on this edition of Agriculture USA, fat pets and what you can do about them. I'm Gary Crawford. There was a time when being fat was not considered a terrible thing. Some folks, like actor-comedian Victor Bruno, made money out of it. Here is a poem he wrote on fatness. I'm fat. I'm fat. That's all there is to that. You might think it etiquette to say that I am heavy set or just big bone. You want to bet? I'm fat. I'm fat. I'm fat. And the problem is that being fat today is much more common with about 60% of us currently overweight. But you know what? It's not just people. It's pets. Yes, we're seeing the same trend. 30 to 40% of animals are overweight, and you know, 20% or so are in that obese category. <laughs> wow, that's Dr. Susan Nelson, a veterinarian and professor at Kansas State University, and she says there's definitely a correlation here between more of us being overweight and our pets. Yeah, there's a big connection. Kind of just like us, there's a lot of palatable foods out there, and fat usually makes them more palatable, and so we like to eat them less exercise. We just have less time for exercise, so the dogs don't get to go out for the walks as often with their owners, and 
So they're laying around the house watching TV while the owners are too and usually snacking. Oh, and the pounds start to come on both pets and owners. But most of us don't notice what's happening to our dog or cat. It kind of sneaks up on people. You know, you're with your pet every day. You just don't really realize it. Sometimes not until there's an obvious problem of some sort. And indeed, just as with people, Dr. Nelson says being overweight's not a good thing for a pet either. We see overweight animals have more problems with arthritis or with joints. A lot of times if we can get that weight off, that helps them a lot and less dependency on medications to treat their arthritis. We also see, especially in cats, it predisposes them more to diabetes. The same will go with dogs. For the really overweight animals, it's more of a stress on their cardiovascular system. Dr. Nelson says if you've gained some unwanted pounds yourself, chances are your dog or cat has too. Here are some things to check on your pet to make sure that it's not overweight. One is the amount of fat over the rib area. The other is looking over from the top, they ought to have a waist, so their chest is a little wider, then they go back to a waist, and then their hips are a little bit wider. And when you look from the side, they should have kind of a tummy tuck going up there, so they're kind of leveling out on that underside, and you can't feel the ribs very easily. Those are some warning signs. Well, what can you do about a fat pet? The very first thing you need to do is see your veterinarian and just have a good overall physical exam. There are a few disorders that can actually make animals gain weight. So if the veterinarian suspects that could be an issue, you'll want to have some testing, things like hypothyroidism in dogs. Not every fat dog, though, however, has a low thyroid level. But you do want to make sure physically everything's checked out. But Dr. Nelson says for the most part, our pets are overweight for the same reasons we are. Too much food, not enough exercise. She says many of our pets that uh, come to the vets these days are in for problems either related to or directly caused by carrying too much weight. And what do vets like Dr. Nelson do about it? We do diet calculations for the owners to kind of let them know just how many calories that they should be consuming in a day to lose weight. We try to counsel them on some diet selections. There's a lot of variety of diets, but there are ones made specifically for weight loss. And then there are some for weight maintenance, so we try to get them on a weight loss diet. The diet pet food industry certainly a growing one, but just as with people, diet is not the only cause or a cure for fat pets. Exercise, a biggie. You know, getting out once or twice a day, not just throwing them out in the backyard. They won't exercise enough, but getting out and going for walks, playing fetch, those kind of things. So exercise would be a very good thing for a dog. I don't know how you'd handle a cat, but at any rate, Dr. Nelson says exercising with our pets would be a good thing for us, too. Yes, it would. I, I has benefits for everybody. <laughs> so, as you heard Dr. Nelson say earlier, weight problems can sneak up on us, and that's why we should take ourselves to our doctors for regular checkups and our pets to our vets on a regular basis because, of course, our pets can't speak up for themselves and say, I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat. No, they can't. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. How did last year's average warm temperatures for the U.S. compare to previous ones, and would that figure be considered record-setting? Rod Bain reports. How warm was 2023? The average temperature for 2023, 54.4 degrees Fahrenheit. That number, according to USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey, was 2.5 degrees above the 20th century mean temperature. And in terms of data and statistics, 
going back as far back as 1895. It turned out to be the fifth warmest year over the last 129. And in terms of the years that were warmer on average than 2023. All four of those years have occurred in the last decade and a half, starting with 2012 and then continuing with 2016, 2017, and 2021. The breakdown of average warm temperature by state last year looks like this. It was the warmest year on record in five states across the southern and eastern United States. Starting in the south, warmest year on record in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. And then in the east, it was also the warmest on record in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. However, if you expand that to looking at the top 10 warmest years on record, it was a much longer list. It included every single state from the Mississippi River eastward to the Atlantic seaboard, and then also included the states of New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Washington state. Of the 48 contiguous states in the Union, only one was not in the upper or warmer one-third of historical distribution. That state that was the coolest ranking for the year was Nevada, but even there it was the 52nd warmest year during the 129-year period of record. Rippy adds, among the climate contributors to a warm 2023. Very few cold outbreaks during 2023, and we had that epic heat wave across the deep south and general heat in many other areas of the country as we went through the year. Now, how did the warmth play a role in precipitation last year? If you look at the overall precipitation across the lower 48 states, the average value was 29.46 inches, just a little bit below or 98% of the 20th century mean of 29.94 inches. That marks the 43rd driest year on record of the last 129. A state-by-state -state breakdown of 2023 precipitation totals indicate we see our rankings ranging from the eighth driest year in Louisiana to top 10 wetness in all six New England states. That was a region that was hit by significant flooding twice during the year, starting in July and then ending again in December with another big flood event. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. This is the Aconet News Hour, and we will be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. Here's Brian German with this week's almond update. Today's specialty crop news brought to you by the Almond Board of California. You can find them online at almonds.com. Industry reports show that navel orangeworm damage was high in almonds last season, and UC Cooperative Extension Entomology and Pest Management Advisor David Havlin explained why at the Almond Conference 2023 back in December. The first thing I want to do is, is define sanitation. Um, I do hear people say, I shook my trees, I sanitized. Okay? That's not exactly what sanitation means. So, so there's four steps to sanitation. There's the shaking process, get them off the trees, a polling process okay, to get the numbers down to a threshold, and then you're blowing and you're mowing. All of them are needed. And here's why. So it's kind of scientific, mechanistically. Let me take you back to a really old study. On the x-axis here, this is number of mummies. The y-axis is the amount of damage. In this case, when you go from 20 mummies down to 10 mummies, what sort of reduction in damage do you get here? Okay, when you go down by 10, there's about a 3% reduction in damage. But look down here in this part of the curve. Okay, do you see it's not a straight line? So in this case, you went from three to one. 
Okay, that's only a reduction of two mummies, but that was another 3% reduction in damage. So can you see the farther you go in reducing the number of mummies is the more impactful sanitation is. And why is that? Um, on the front end, when you're knocking mummies off and, and just reducing them, you're getting rid of worms. Okay, that's good, that's beneficial. But once you get down into these really low numbers, you're reducing worms, but anything that survives is struggling to find mates. If they do mate, they're struggling for a place to lay their eggs. And the amount of energy it takes, uh, you know, imagine if you're a moth that has to lay 50 eggs and you have two mummies per tree. You have to find every single mummy on each of 25 trees to lay 50 eggs, assuming you never come back to the same, egg, the, the same mummy. Okay? That's why we drive mummies and sanitation down to two per tree. It's so we're impacting all of these reasons that navel orgrim gets lower instead of just shaking a tree and saying, hey, you know, we reduce the numbers. Okay? That's why this threshold of two per tree is so important. And then I want to just make one little point on damage. I have a lot of people I'll talk to, they'll say, you know, I had 4% USDA damage, and they equate that to I lost 4%. And that's not the case. So a little bit of back of the napkin math here. You know, if you have 4% damage in your USDA, you're not getting paid for that 4%. But there's another 4% typically that was left in the field. Okay, so blowouts, or they got obliterated in the hulling shelling process, Typically, windrow damage levels are twice the USDA damage, okay? So 4% on your grade, add the 4% in the field that's not showing up, you're already up to eight. And if you go, let's say, up to 4% damage compared to something else, and you lose, let's say, eight cents in bonuses, sorry, that shouldn't say 8%, that should say eight cents in bonuses, or sorry, eight, or sorry 12 cents on $1.60, that's an 8% loss in bonuses paid on all of your crop that gets paid. So when you add all that up, a 4% on your grade sheet is something more like 15 or 16% less money in your pocket. That's why the economics of investing in naval orange room are so huge, is because these losses are much bigger than what shows up just on that USDA sheet. So a third topic is insecticides, our third pillar. And in a normal year, we get this synchronized hull split, early July, that's right at the start of the second flight, We'll spray at that timing in a couple weeks later. Uh, beautiful system, works fairly well. Well, what did we get in 2023? We got this really long bloom that led to a, uh, you know, a whole split that was not synchronized. No matter how much water you pulled, okay, it, just, it didn't all come at once. It didn't come at the 4th of July. It came in mid-July, at least in, you know, I'm speaking from a South Valley perspective. It wasn't synchronized with the start of the second flight. And all the timings were messed up. Um, in fact, when the hull split came, it was kind of in the middle of the flight instead of at the start of the flight. Uh, a lot of growers called me about the 4th of July and said, David, I'm ready to do my hull split spray, but the flight hasn't started and my nuts aren't even close to starting to split. What do I do? Like, oh, that's easy. Wait a week. They said, well, yeah, I already tried that. I called the applicator and they said a week from now, they're 100% booked up with everyone else's hull split sprays. They don't have a window for me. What do I do? It's like, I don't know. I'm a scientist, I know the worms, I can't help with the logistics. Um, but that was a real struggle by growers that they just, you know, trying to navigate the best timing um, with, with everything out of whack. This one is just mother nature uh, through a, a huge curveball. And then the fourth topic here is timely harvest. 
And the way I want to explain this is through two case scenarios. Okay? So when I say timely harvest, here's what I mean, I'm, uh, the definition. That means harvesting nonpareils before uh, the third flight starts. Because in that case, most, so you've got your second flight. Most of the worms during the month of July are in the nonpareils. So if you're able to shake your nonpareils, get them piled and fumigated before any of those worms become adults, there's no influence of the third flight on the nonpareils, and you're essentially removing the third flight from the field before it becomes the third flight. If 99% of those nonpareils get, you know, get uh, fumigated before those worms become adults, you got 99% control of those worms. I'll tell you, that's way better than two insecticides. Okay? That's a huge, huge, huge benefit in a management program. What happens if you have a not timely system? All of the worms in the nonpareils, which this year was, was above normal, all emerge. They all become the third flight. They lay eggs back on your nonpareils. That becomes your, your pinhole damage. And they lay eggs in your pollinators. So your pollinators are all above normal to start with in the month of August. And then if you don't get those pollinators off before that generation completes, you know, let's say in the middle of September, you now have an even greater fourth flight that's reinfesting your pollinators. So if you had Monterey's, okay, if you had Monterey's with double-digit damage, this is what happened here. Um, so basically, you know, what kind of year do we have in 2023? We had the latter. Okay? I don't know anybody that harvested nonpareils before the third flight got going, and I don't know anyone that harvested Monterey's before the full brunt of the fourth flight hit them. Um, essentially a nightmare scenario. Again, Mother Nature causing your crop to be a week, two weeks. Um, like, I did see people picking up nuts in November. I uh, just crazy. I would have never said that's possible, but it happened. And you can watch the entire presentation of a year-long management strategy for naval orangeworm at almonds.com slash conference. Thank you again to Brian German with this week's Almond Update. Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to get the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. Just search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will return in just a moment. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. India is among the nations scheduled to receive a USDA-led agricultural trade mission in 2024. Yet what makes this country intriguing as a potential export market? Rod Bain reports. What makes India an attractive ag export market for our nation? Ryan Brewster of USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service starts with this. India and its 1.4 billion consumers really is one of the largest untapped markets in the world for U.S. agriculture. Those consumers are looking for high-quality agricultural products. They're looking for things that the United States can produce. Another reason, the lifting or reducing of Indian tariffs on certain U.S. farm and food exports throughout 2023. This summer, we had some market access opportunities for U.S. products, including chickpeas, lentils, almonds, walnuts, apples, and frozen turkey. So it's really kind of opened up India in ways that we haven't had in many years. All this behind the addition of India among the potential markets 
being visited this year by a delegation of a U.S.-led ag trade mission. The India mission takes place this spring. The trade mission runs from April 22nd to April 25th. Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs Alexis Taylor is going to lead this trade mission to New Delhi. As mentioned previously, there are several American products of interest to buyers, not just from India, but neighboring countries such as Sri Lanka and Nepal. For instance, the pulses, the lentils, the chickpeas, those things, they're really part of the Indian diet and that middle class. But we're also looking at other things, some of our more historic products, apples, fruits into India, tree nuts, one of the biggest markets for almonds, as well as some more of those high quality consumer products. So we're looking at distilled spirits and wines. We're looking at seafood. We're looking at ingredients for further processing in India. Interested, eligible individuals for the India Ag Trade Mission have until January 31st to apply via www.fas.usda.gov slash topics slash trade dash missions. We're looking forward to hosting not only U.S. exporters of agricultural products, but representatives from state departments of agriculture, representatives from ag industry groups, and really kind of trying to make sure that the trade mission is not only building business relationships with exporters, but also providing some education about the India market as well, so that those groups can take that information back and spread that information across the country. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. How is winter wheat holding up under this current Arctic cold wave? Gary Crawford looks into it. Of course, it's impossible now to know how much damage, if any, this current Arctic cold wave has done to winter wheat. A lot of that wheat was covered by a protective snow cover, however. There is some modest concern for winter wheat across the northern high plains. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says the concerns are mainly for Montana, where there was very little snow cover at all, but some majorly low mercury readings. Temperatures plummeting into the minus 30 to minus 50 degree range. There is certainly some concern for winter kill for that wheat, especially coming off a record warm December. Rippy says there's also a little bit of worry about wheat in the southern wheat growing areas. But for the core areas right across Kansas, number one production state, beautiful blanket of snow protecting the crop, and that should really help out as that eventually percolates into the soil as melting snow here likely in a few weeks. And in fact, Rippy says by this time next week, almost the whole country will be enjoying warmer than normal weather. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's today's Agriculture News. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at Agnet West on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halverson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. AgNet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.